It's a great privilege to be here. And when Bill gave us a list of passages to potentially speak from, I went immediately to this passage in Mark, the boy with the unclean spirit, who's demonically afflicted. Another version says he was a tortured little boy. And the reason I went there is because it's personal. Because Linda and I experienced this type of thing with our firstborn Christian when he was a little guy. Uh, again, noticing when he's about three and a half years old, and I'll speak to that in a moment. But it's personal with Linda and me. We have been through this and saw God do wonderful things. Um, he was remarkably delivered, six years old, by one prayer, by one command, and he was never the same again, neither was our family, because of that instance. And again, I'll tell the story quickly, and my wife Linda's sitting over here, and, and if she sees I missed any crucial fact, I'll ask her to wave her hand. She'll either wave her hand because I missed something, or else I should slow down, because I often get going pretty fast. But you know, there's nothing more concerning, more hurting in a family for a mom and dad than a child that's at risk. Something going on that you can't fix. Something you know that's going to be terrifically difficult in their future life. And Linda and I really, uh, really suffered during that time along with our little son. So it's personal for me. And number two, uh, these battles are not uh, something that happens every once in a while. They're inevitable in the life of a Christian. In Ephesians 6, it talks about when the day of evil comes, and the tense there is the sense that it will come. It's just a matter of time. And I think sometimes in our Christian life, we overlook the fact that we are in a cosmic battle between God's kingdom and the kingdom of the dark side of the devil. And there's nothing that Hollywood could do, in Star Wars or otherwise, to kind of dramatize that in a way that we would really understand it. But it's going on all the time. It's going on for eons will continue until there's that bloody last resolution of everything in, in resolution and, and uh, the new city and the new earth. Um, but we're involved in that because we are servants. We are soldiers. And so when the enemy comes, we have to be prepared to do that. And that's why I think it's important that we talk about these types of passages from time to time. Because Satan attacks where we are weak and you know, we've got anger in our life, bitterness, and we've left it there for a long period of time. We give the devil a foothold in that part of our character, our feelings, our emotions. The devil will be back. And he will pull that until he creates havoc in our life, in our marriage, our family, whatever we're involved with. And he attacks the very weakest. He attacks our children from time to time. And it is not fair, is it? Lynn and I say that all the time. It's not fair that our son is afflicted this way. And we didn't know what it was until that prayer happened in Spokane, Washington one night in uh, Linda's home church. But uh, why should our children suffer? But we face an enemy that doesn't kind of say, well, I'll only pick on the bad people or I'll only pick on the strong people. Uh, he is there to kill and steal and destroy. He goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he doesn't care uh, who he's going to bring down or can bring down. He will do it if he can. Uh, so it's not just about modest distractions in our Christ Christian life. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of this dark world. And so we have the enemy of Satan and his de demonic world, and Pastor Steve spoke to this so eloquently a couple of weeks back. And we have the cosmos, the world system, that also wars with our thinking. 2 Corinthians 10.3-4 says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. 
On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And so kind of an opening PS as we begin this session tonight. As a Christian, as a servant, as a soldier, as a, a living stone being built in the temple for God, as a child of God, as God's field, there's no way we're going to escape having to deal with the devil from time to time, and we should be prepared. And those uh, somewhat inexplainable disturbances in our life, in our family, in our job, whatever, as a Christian, I think we should always think, could the devil be behind this? Have I given any foothold anywhere? How should I stand against this and understand this? And then the third PS here to begin, that these things are often, these spiritual conflicts are often very emotional. Uh, because you have the victim, whoever's being afflicted in some way, and you have those who love the victim who are struggling with that as well, and you have a church family that's struggling with that. Uh, there's a ripple effect. And can I tell you that when our little guy was struggling with his illness, turned out later to be an affliction, Linda and I were struggling. We were struggling. We've been mature Christians for a long time, but uh, we were emotionally involved in this whole thing at a very deep level, sometimes to the point of despair. Uh, we had a poster somewhere we'd seen in those days where you have a cat kind of hanging on by its claws. That's where we were at, and particularly my wife, who was dealing with this on a daily basis at home. And tonight we're going to see, too, from the text that Jesus was deeply emotionally involved in this. This wasn't just a casual transaction of demonic affliction and deliverance, but Jesus was deeply invested in this, too, and we'll see that from the syntax. So uh, let me tell the story. I'm pulling out a file here that Linda compiled. And again, honey, if I don't get everything exactly right, and you know, by the way, ladies, that men don't get everything exactly right. Uh, we don't have to be exact because we have wives to you know, make sure we say everything the right way and get the timing right. I'm usually off by 10 or 15 years, so uh, I think it happened when he was six, right? And our records indicate that at three years of age, uh, Linda knows he was extremely thirsty. He begged for juice and water. He was very hungry. He had to eat often. He was desperate to eat. He urinated often. He sweated easily. At four and a half, it wasn't better. It was worse, continually thirsty. Um, Changes in diet affected him after eating sugar at birthday parties or holidays. His head would get damp and wet around the hairline. His cheeks would become bright red. Thirsty, shaky, he'd lose his energy, wake up with headaches and complain for the next few days. He felt dizzy. He was crying over insignificant things. Totally uncharacteristic of him. This is not characteristic of any little kid, really, at, uh, at four and a half years of age. He'd crouch in a corner and yell, don't touch me. And he said he felt awful and he wanted to hit someone. He might hit and kick. And he didn't do that when dad came home. But he did it when, when mom was there with him. And it seemed to modify a little bit with eating more regularly. And Linda was a wonderful cook. I mean, this kid had everything he needed at any time. At five years of age, oh, it took him to a doctor. He said maybe a low blood sugar problem. So we began to modify his diet even further. No added sugar or honey, protein snacks every two, hour, every two hours we were on. Linda was on a, a schedule every two hours. We feed with cottage cheese, nut bars, whatever like that, turkey. Um, he felt he, comment, he, he commented that he felt better, and uh, he had fewer extreme changes in character. So he's saying to kindergarten. And those of you in the audience who have children sent their kids to kindergarten, everything goes super after that, right? They're in kindergarten. The tough part is over. It didn't get easier in kindergarten. So we had to send him with snacks, and the, the teacher didn't really believe us that he had to be fed that routinely. And so 
She didn't do it. And again, his hairline got wet, and he had trouble writing. He was shaky. He was tense. He was thirsty. Teacher says he has motor control. We had him tested at the University of Washington. Highly intelligent guy. In November of 1980, the symptoms were getting worse, so we took him out of school. That's kind of hard. Take your kid out of kindergarten, you know? And uh, uh, we had him tested again, and, and uh, we went to an allergist, and there came a long list of things he couldn't eat. And our whole family was imprisoned to our son's affliction and the diet. You know, it was no ice cream. It was terrible. <laughs> well, I ate ice cream when Christian was asleep, but he couldn't do that. In the summer of 1980, uh, there were more tests run, and uh, we were just about to take him. And, and we were outside the room sometimes at Children's Orthopedic, where you could hear your son saying, not another needle, no more needles, no more needles, as they were taking tests. And it was about to go in for another all-day fast, and we were at uh, Linda's home church in Spokane, Washington. And that morning, the pastor said, tonight, George Birch will be preaching. He's a missionary from India, and, or China, rather. Thank you, Linda, I caught that one. And you should come. And so uh, we thought we should do that, and uh, Christian was put down for a snap, and he woke up the way he did so often, angry, and I hate God, and I don't want to go to church. And so the family left to go to church, and we fed Christian, got to calm down, went to the meeting, and I was sitting in the back with the kids, uh, Ben Heidi about this high, and Christian about like, about like this, and uh, not listening too much, kind of keeping them happy, and Linda came back after the service and said, this missionary said, that he had dealt with demonic afflictions in China, and some of them involved children with hypoglycemia. We thought that might be it, because the test we are going to go back to take the next day in, in, uh, in Seattle was an uh, all-day fast, and they're going to test his uh, pituitary gland to see if there's a tumor there. That's what they thought. The doctors could not explain why this little boy was struggling that way. And so she said, should we go pray? And we were desperate. We were desperate because our entire family was hostage to this, and we felt so bad for our little boy. And I remember one night, uh, talking with Christian in bed, he said, Dad, is this ever going to be over? Is God ever going to heal me? And I had to say, I don't know. I just don't know. So Linda says, should we go and have him prayed for? And I said, yes, why not? We've tried everything else. The doctors can't figure it out. We went up to the front, and George Birch, he served in the mission field in China for 30 years or 40 years, something like that. You know, I, I want to say typical missionary, but just a godly man. To kind of like you want to lay down and look at his shoes and say, oh, you're such a godly man. You just felt Jesus when he walked into the room because he'd gone through so much. And, he, and so he asked Linda and I some kind of preliminary questions about sin in our life and, and just kind of want, we know now what it was. He was making sure we had not given any generational footholds there. He says, well, I'll, I'll pray for him. So he took Christian in his arms. No, I think I was holding him. And he put his hand on Christian. He said, if there's any spirit that's affecting this little boy in the areas of, and he listed them. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I command you to leave and not return. Amen. And so we looked at each other and, is that it? He says, here's my card. Let me know what happens. So we went, uh, we were going to go to another friend's house of Linda's family that night for um, crumpets and tea and desserts. And on the way, Linda said, what are we going to do? And I said, well, if he's been healed, let's see. And so he had orange juice and crumpets and whatever was there. And, he, and we watched him eat. didn't flash up with red. He didn't get angry. 
And I got in the car, went home, went to bed. We're thinking, maybe this is real. And the next morning he got up and he wasn't angry. And we're thinking, God has done something. He's done a real miracle here. Uh, about 1 o'clock, Linda had to call Children's Orthopedic and say, uh, we're not coming in for the testing on Monday because my son has been healed. Click. You know, not, it wasn't quite that way, but they didn't understand it. Uh, he t- we went down for his... And we went out and we bought syrup. We had syrup on our pancakes for breakfast. I mean, this was, this was wonderful. Better than the start of the football season. Um, he went down for his nap. He got up. He was the same old, cold, sweating, angry Christian. And we went from here down to here. I mean, I, we couldn't even pray. And so I called my father off the dairy, and he came back and prayed. And we discovered that when we prayed that way against the enemy, then he got better. And so we were driving home that night uh, to Seattle, and, and Linda said, uh, what are we going to tell people? Because the church, our church had been praying for him. I know I'm taking a lot of time here, but got to tell the story. Uh, praying for him, and I said, well, I don't know, we'll just tell him he's better. A real coward. So I wasn't a pastor then, so I could do things like that. <laughs> and I was reading Psalm 40 that night, talking about declaring to the congregation what God has done. And I said, no, we'll tell our Christian friends that he's been delivered, and we'll tell uh, those in the neighborhood he's been healed, and we'll declare what God has done. And we were taking little steps of faith to support the fact that God had done something in the life of our child. And we didn't know exactly how it was going to end, but we know God had done something. And the next morning, uh, Christian got up to go to school, uh, and I think he told Linda he didn't need his snacks anymore. So uh, she sent him off to school. I didn't give Linda any instructions. I went off early to work, let her figure it out. And uh, he got there, and they had prepared some sort of a special festival. And they said, oh, Christian's here. Well, we don't have that. And Linda said, he's been healed. Public school teachers kind of look back like this, like saying, really? Oh, okay. But in two weeks, a teacher sent a note home saying, he's a different kid, a different kid. You don't need to send snacks. He's doing fine. Do you have a slide you can put up of Christian now somewhere? Someone has it? Yeah. This is Christian now at 43. 43. Uh, this is the day he did a 150-mile ride around Mount Rainier. Those are real mountains, by the way. In the West, you have real mountains like this. Uh, so, you know, he, he is hale and hearty and never looked back physically. Thank you. That's enough for the slide. But we, there was a, a genuine healing, a deliverance that went on when that missionary prayed. And that put us into a situation where not only was he delivered, but Linda and I were delivered. And can I just say this? What I'm experiencing and understanding as a Christian is that these things that happen in our life where God does something really great is just not for us. It's for our children to know and our grandchildren to know. It's for the people of faith to know that God really works miracles in life. And when you've got one, you can find a gold coin and say, that was 24 karat, that was a genuine miracle. You need to share that story, and that's one reason why we're on Mark 9, 14, 29 tonight. So let's turn to the text. Mark 9, 14, 29, you have a, a handout that has the text. And you notice that some of the, uh, some of the words are bolded. So let me read the whole thing, and I'm going to, as I go through here, kind of explain what the bolding means. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him and asked them, and he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. 
Let me back up a bit. Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it. I begged them to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. It has often cast him into fire, into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out from him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. That's the story for tonight. And where were they coming from? And when they came to the disciples, where were they coming from? Jesus, Peter, James, and John just come off the mountain of transfiguration. And Luke says that they were up there, they came back the next day, and they, they uh, met a crowd there. So the prior day, they had spent time on the Mount of Transfiguration. They had seen Christ transfigured uh, in blazing white robes, a dense cloud covering them, terrified. Uh, and they'd heard the voice of God say, this is my son, listen to him. And they'd seen all these things, and they're coming down from the mountain from a divine encounter, and they walk into this human, very human argument. And Jesus asked this question, why are you arguing with them? And text says, someone from the crowd answered him. Uh, Luke says that the father called to him, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only son. And he said that with much tears. The father was begging. See, the the disciples didn't respond, why are you arguing? Because they're probably shamed. They couldn't drive the spirit out. They were probably ridiculed by the, the uh, scribes, the teachers of the law, who were there purposely to pick on them to, to discredit the ministry of Christ. And so they were beaten. They couldn't do what they had done in the past. And the scribes didn't say anything because they learned you don't mess with Jesus. Because he knows the law and the prophets more than we do. And for every riddle he has, he has an answer and a stronger riddle back for us. And so the father with emotion says, really, in, in Luke, I beg you, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only son. And Luke also says that he had begged the disciples. This father was humbled at the end of his rope. And the, the child was in serious trouble, right? Uh, tortured. It's used in, in one version, and I picked that for our title. He was, uh, as you see later in the text here, he was thrown into the fire. The demon threw him into to fire, threw him into water, probably into wells to kill him. Threw him into cooking fires because that's what they cooked outside. They didn't have any fancy ranges inside their, their homes. Um, it says, the father says, he was afflicted from childhood, and that word childhood meant from zero to seven. So at a very young age, he began to have these, these afflictions uh, because the spirit was obviously trying to, uh, to murder him. It says he throws him down, 
And the Greek here for throwing down was like this. So think of the NFL and how, you, just imagine our, our Chicago Bear linebackers tackling some of these guys and they throw them down. They were crushing them. And he was doing this over and over and over again because it says in Luke again that he was continuously working on this kid. So he was uh, terribly bruised, probably, and scarred. Uh, he would stiffen and grind his teeth and foam at the mouth like a petite mall grand sin. sin Petite grand mal symptom like epilepsy. And uh, he was, had been on the edge of death. This father had spent his life for many years just protecting his, his kid from being murdered by the enemy. And no one could stop it and no one could understand it. And isn't it kind of surprising Jesus' response? Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. I think this is what I call holy frustration. Uh, and he calls the, the faithless generation, which was a term typically used in the New Testament for disbelieving pagans, for the lost and never to be free, the people on the outside. And the word O here, O, faithless generation, in terms of the idiom of that day, showed that he was hurt by the fact his disciples had failed. Oh, faithless generation, or the culture had failed. So it was a strong indictment, but of who? Was it... Was he coming back at the father who was in tears pleading for his son and pleading for some help or some healing or deliverance? I don't think so. I don't think so. Probably included many of the disbelievers that were there, and that's why I labeled it in the outline, the oppositional faith crowd. The type of people say, you can't make me buy it or believe it. And they were always those types of people in the crowd. They're just for the show and, uh, or the bread or the fish or whatever was going to come up next in a miracle. And they didn't really believe it, but they kind of enjoyed the circus atmosphere that was there. As well as the scribes. Their job was to prove Christ not being divine, to prove that this was all a, a, a fakery, uh, fake news. This guy wasn't who he claims to be. He's not a real prophet. Uh, I am not going to believe him. There were those in the crowd that were oppositional faith people, that they had faith that he was wrong and not the person he called to be. But what about his own disciples? Because I think uh, the father says, your disciples couldn't do it. And his response is, oh, faithless generation. It sounds like he's saying to his disciples, oh, faithless generation. Kind of a head slap, again, using an NFL analogy here. Uh, because you'd failed to do what I authorized you and enabled you to do. That is to cast out the spirit. And implicitly, the nine who were left, because three had been with Christ, had been acting like pagans who no longer had belief that God could do this in his name. And they'd done it in the past. I want you to, I'm just going to run really quickly through uh, the earlier chapters in Mark uh, to see why Christ would be exasperated. Okay, they had seen the deliverance from uh, evil spirits routinely. First chapter of Mark, uh, he delivered a, a, a man from a demons in the Capernaum synagogue. And that night it says that the people brought to him all kinds of people that needed this too. Mark 1.32. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And Jesus in Mark, the third chapter, designated his 12 disciples and said, I send you out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. 
in Mark chapter 6, verse 7, he called his 12 disciples and sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. In Mark 6, 12 to 13, they did it. They came back, they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So they had actually done this before. And in between chapters 1 and chapter 9, when this occurred, they had seen Jesus heal a paralyzed man that when it was lowered through the roof. Pastor Eric talked to us about that last week. Still a terrible, terrible storm in the Sea of Galilee. Even the, the winds and the sea obey him. Send a legion of demons down into pigs. That was Pastor Steve a couple weeks back. Feed 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish and walk on water and heal people who could just come up in the marketplace and touch him, and they were healed. Chapter 8, feed 4,000 with a few loaves and fish and heal a blind man. How could they question his divinity and the power he had and the fact that he had given them authority to uh, trample on snakes and scorpions and to, to cast out demons? And they had done it, and they failed this time. And why did they fail? Maybe because it suggests in the last two verses in this passage that it was a strong demon. But they had kind of given up short of the goal and had been shamed in the process. And I think the issue here was like you're acting like you have no faith. In fact, you don't have any faith because your faith has been shuttered or shattered or compromised by the fact that you didn't get it done. And I've given you the authority to get it done. And so Jesus says, bring the boy to me. And what he does, verse 20, they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground, rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. Okay, Jesus is not panicked. The demon begins to, to uh, torture this kid and throw him around. And can you imagine the crowd? The scribes are saying, see, there's no power here. He can't do that. His disciples couldn't do that. Uh, can you imagine the onlookers who are looking for a circus thinking, hey, this is kind of cool. Haven't seen this in a while. Maybe laughing, making fun of the whole process. The father thinking, oh, this is my last chance. Uh, Christ is here. Jesus is here. Maybe he could have done this. And the disciples thinking, oh, can he really do this? How are we gonna, how's he going to rescue this particular moment? But Jesus was not panicked. He's always sovereign, always in control. And he asked calmly the, the father for more background information. And the father couldn't stand it, really, could he? This is his opportunity to have his son healed and, and made normal in some way. And so he says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. That's why I label this father as being one of incomplete faith. The disciples were uncertain faith because they believed, but yet parts of their life, parts of things that happened, they didn't really believe all the way. But this father had incomplete faith and admitted it. In Luke, it says that he called Christ Lord when he came so that he expected some divinity here. He heard about the miracles. He knew God had to be doing something here through this man. And uh, he believed, but help my unbelief. I can't quite get there to believe the whole thing. And Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And the word for um, have compassion us and help us, the word for help here is a Greek word that means the expectation that that person is going to rush to your assistance. So he was right there. He said, I believe, but I don't know. Can you do this? Help my unbelief. He wanted to believe. And Jesus says, I command you, spirit, to come out of him. And literally, it's I myself command you 
to leave him and never enter him again. And, and we know from other instances in the New Testament in Matthew 12, 43-45, that deliver, delivering someone from demons does not end the struggle often, particularly pagans, it says here, because they will come back and be worse than before, and particularly when there's nothing like the Holy Spirit that fills that heart. So uh, he cries out. The demon cries out now, verse 26, and convulses him terribly. One last effort to murder this child uh, and this time the demon's crying out in pain or frustration because he doesn't know where he's going uh, and to what end. But he never came back. And Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And when he entered this house, his disciples asked him, why could we not cast it out? I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. But I want to tell you just a little anecdote that I, I uh, skipped over for when the missionary prayed for our son. Linda's mom said, Christian, we put Christian down on the floor, and he said, I'm free. I'm free. I'm free. And he was. He was. He'd been freed. And we had been freed from that. But the purpose of seeing our son become a man and be healthy and, and be a great father and, and husband, but to also, I think, share tonight, you know, how that happened. And what does that mean for faith? Because it, it um, solidified Linda and my faith that God can do anything, that God, as, as, Christian said, as Christ said here, um, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. We could now say it is all things are possible. The doctors could not figure it out, but God did it. And we know he can handle virtually everything, just like he says. And that he can. So the question for tonight is where do we, where do you, fit in the faith scale depicted in the story? Some of you out there, I doubt it, but there might be a few who are saying, I'm a nun, I don't believe. I don't believe people who believe. I have no faith in people who have faith. I just don't buy it. I can't buy it. I won't buy it. And uh, I will mock it. That is those who are what I'd characterize as oppositional faith. They're not interested. They're opposed to faith in God. And as they say in Ephesians, without hope and without God, their destiny is sure. Uncertain faith. I want to talk about this a little bit. Um, Maybe some of us in here are like the nine disciples who were doing work for God and thought we had this, thing under, this uh, spiritual walk thing under control and we've tried to do something like praying for someone or, or we're trusting and believing and it doesn't happen on our schedule. It doesn't happen the way we want to. It's beyond our power. And we used to believe the Bible from cover to cover, but now we think maybe there's a couple of pages missing. Uh, we used to believe that Jesus could do everything, but there's things in our life that I wonder whether God will really rescue me here, whether he can really do it. Is it really all things are possible? We're facing interminable problems, irresolvable problems. We've prayed, we've believed, we've begged God, we've talked to our pastors, we've read more scripture, but God hasn't answered the prayers the way we ask him to answer the prayers. In fact, he hasn't answered at all. All he's asking us to be is be more perseverant, hang in there. Trust me, just keep going. And uh, that's not good enough. That's not good enough because you're thinking, uh, can God really save my marriage, heal my cancer, save me from bankruptcy, get my, me a job that's sufficient to support my family, give me a, a spouse, show me what I should do with my life. I, can I ever escape this lust or this sin pattern I've had for a long time? I don't know if God can do that. I just don't know. The circumstances are so overwhelming to me that I just can't believe everything anymore. And I've given up praying, and I've given up reading my Bible, and I've given up expecting God to do the impossible. I just can't expect it here. 
I believe everything else, but it's just not happening. And I think Jesus says here to those who are uncertain faith, you are like a faithless generation. And Luke says faithless and perverse generation. Um, and uh, you're, you repent of this. You're listening to your feelings instead of believing what God's word says about the situation. Repent that you're listening to Satan's lie, his eternal lie. Did God really say? And you're, you forgot that God really said that he is full of compassion and mercy, that there's nothing impossible for him, uh, that uh, we're his children and he loves us. We're not an orphan in this world. That trials and tribulations are part of, part of God's plan for us to grow us up and make us more mature. I wish he would just give us pills, right? We go down to Costco and buy a jar of pills and it says, spiritual growth. That's easy. God doesn't grow us that way, does he? He grows us in trials and tribulations and suffering and uncertainty and painful circumstances that we don't know whether we can get all the way through still believing, but we do. And that's called perseverance in Romans and James and, and uh, in Hebrews it talks about perseverance as being one of the critical Christian characteristics that other characteristics are built on. Uh, and so we, we kind of forget what God says about himself. And so we don't believe all, totally that all things are possible to those who believe because we've lost the fact that there's two issues. Can he do it? And the answer to that we already know is yes, he can do whatever. Whatever we need, he can do. The real answer, the next question is, will he do that? Is that part of his will for our life? Will that be to his glory and our good? Because often God will answer what we're praying for because we know he can do it, but he does something that builds us up in different ways. Maybe a little harder, maybe a little shorter, maybe a little longer. But it's really the will question. This father had the can question. He was right on the edge, right on the edge. And that brings me to the father of incomplete faith. Uh, some tonight here might be like the father. Uh, perhaps you're new in the faith like this man was. I'm just really on the cusp. And uh, the question being, is this God I'm now serving capable of handling absolutely everything in my life? including this one really hard thing that I can't get through. I want to fully believe. Is it okay to pray that, God, you help me to fully believe, have that total faith that I, I know you need, you call us to be? Uh, perhaps you're so confused about your future, so desperate for relief, you're just almost on the verge of giving up. God, I don't know what's going to happen, but you've got to do something. I'm begging you. I'm desperate. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And I don't know if there's any repentance required here, my friends, but it's taking some steps forward to say, I'm going to pray to believe. Because what happened when this man in his desperation called to Christ and he said, can, everything is possible. He moved quickly to take care of the problem and to show compassion to this father. And that's the God we serve when we're on the cusp of believing everything, and we just can't get there, and God wants us to, and it's a very difficult part of our life. And he, and he says, I understand where you're at. I understand you're so confused, you're so down, you're so discouraged, you're so depressed, you can't hardly get across the, the curb to say, God, I, I do believe that you can. But we serve a God who says, I understand that, and I love you, and I will answer your prayer. That's, I think, the primary lesson here. Those of us who are in that situation, that God has compassion and understanding for those who want to believe but sometimes can't quite get there. They're not saying, I choose not to believe, but I want to believe. And I'm close to doing that. And God, I just ask you, would you help me believe all the way through? 
And God does that in people's lives. You know, uh, when we're saved, it's God to say, I'm glad you came to faith. Here's the playbook for the rest of your life. Well, he does. He says, this is the playbook for the rest of your life. For those of you who are waiting for football season, we know what playbook is. Uh, but he doesn't give us a, a map for the rest of our life. We learn about God on an iterative basis, on a gradual basis. He reveals things to us as we go ahead. And Linda and I have talked about this a lot. In fact, last night talking about it. Going back, it looks at some of the hardest times in our life, like this, where we were, we were desperate for relief for our son, and he delivered him miraculously and changed our life and how we look at how we looked at life. Then we look back at the hard times, and that's where we learn the most. He didn't tell us everything. He didn't build us into spiritual giants. Still hasn't, but he didn't do it all at once. There's no easy route to being a strong Christian, I don't believe. The route really is to trust God as you go through these circumstances and keep praying in faith and watching God take care of things. Maybe not the schedule you wanted, maybe not the way you wanted, but you see him answering the problem in some way that is a miracle. And you look back five years and 10 years and 15 years and say, that changed me, that changed me, that changed me. God works, he builds us up. You know, our kids don't learn how to ride their bike when they're one year old. I mean, they've got to develop some size and stage and, and some talents. I'm looking down here at my grandkids right now, and I think they're wonderful. Yes, hi, kids. And I know they're wonderful. They're the sweetest, most photogenic grandkids in the entire world. But they have so much to learn about life as they grow. And that's what God calls us to do as we grow in him, to say, I believe, help my unbelief, and he will answer those types of prayers. So are you in an oppositional faith category? Repent. Christ become your savior tonight. You can get rid of all the dross of this culture and uh, believe. Maybe you're uncertain. And you've got some corners of your life where you say, I just can't believe you. can't trust you there, God. And I'd say, repent. Repent. Because God wants you to believe. And a disbelief is, uh, is a sin. Maybe you've kind of backslidden on that bad habit. Trust God everywhere else, but not in this thing right here. Repent and ask God to give you faith to resolve that as well. An incomplete faith. Maybe you are close to believing completely on all different kinds of things. And you want to believe, pray for belief. God will give you that. Father, thank you that, uh, as we've sung tonight, you are all-powerful. Your name is powerful to break chains and deliver and free us. Your word tells us, Lord, then we run free, the free in the path of your commands, for you set our hearts free. Thank you, Lord, for the freedom you bring when we believe you completely. In Jesus' name, amen.